So again, good morning. So this morning I'd like to continue with this uh, cycle of teaching and practice around the theme of uh, practicing with the body. Working with our direct experience of the body as a way to deepen our mindfulness, our uh, wisdom, our compassion, and really to give more power and precision to our practice in general. So this is the third of four talks and explorations on that theme. The first two, and in fact all of the talks, are available uh, on Dharma Seed, Dharma Seed's website. So if you missed one of the first two, you can listen to them, uh, download them, and so forth. They're, they're available. The first session that we had was particularly focused on <clears throat> a few areas. Uh, really, the, first, the last two weeks I've really been focused, and I'll mention just for a few minutes what they were. We were focused first on the importance of giving attention to the body in our practice, particularly its very central role in a few ways. First, for helping us to, for many of us, to break the kind of the trance of our culture in which we're often in a highly mental zone going from one thought, one stimulation to another and not very connected to our bodies. And being with the breath, being with the body helps us to really be more present, really to come out of our repetitive, highly conditioned modes of particularly thought, thinking, and sometimes quite automatic behavior. So the mindfulness of the body, awareness of the body is central for that. And related to that, it's also, I believe, very central for having the practice of mindfulness and wisdom and compassion be alive in daily life. Again, in a culture which is highly mental, we might say, how do we stay present and not on automatic pilot? Awareness of the body, in my experience, plays a very, very central role for many of us to help us to be more present. It breaks the monopoly of the mind, in a way, and sets us up to have much wider grounding in the awareness, which can open to the body, the heart, the mind, each of them when appropriate, and, and make the connections. We also looked at some of our <clears throat> cultural attitudes towards the body and invited us to examine what are my attitudes that I've uh, developed over the years, some of them uh, culturally, socially based, some of them from my own particular history, um, for better or worse, what are my own views of my body? To what extent do I share in some of the larger cultural views? And those views may be mo most obvious around gender or aging or um, ethnicity um, and so forth. To what extent do I have those views of the body? influence my experience of the body, sometimes in rather subtle ways that we're not always aware of. So we gave 
a focus to that. And maybe to have some compassion and some patience, because many of these views of the body um, have been around for 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 5,000 years, perhaps 10,000 years, and may relate to deeper, uh, very old patterns of uh, how we relate to uh, human bodies, how we relate to the earth body, how we relate to the earth. And so just have patience with that. But it also suggests some of the importance that when we actually have different attitudes towards our body, we may be actually involved in uh, cultural and social change. Simply being aware of the body and having a different attitude towards our body is a counterpart, I would hold, of changing some of our views about gender or aging or the earth and so forth. So quite an important area. Just this simply being with the breath and studying the breath, I think, opens up to those kind of horizons. So, um, and then we also develop some initial practices over the last few weeks. And the invitation was for each of us to uh, work with one or two or three practices that help us in, at the level and in the way that feels appropriate to us to deepen or give some more uh, focus to our practicing with the body. So some of the initial practices are the very basic ones that many of us have been doing for quite some time, being with the breath, being with body sensations when they're predominant in our formal meditation, as well as at the dentist, or (laughs) to give one charged example, uh, at situations uh, when our bodily experience becomes predominant, the pleasant experiences for many of us of eating. Just the invitation was to heighten that awareness of our body sensations or to cultivate awareness of the whole body as another practice. And so we mentioned a number of different ways that we could deepen our practicing with the body. The breath, body sensations, awareness of the whole body in meditation, in our activities, Uh, other practices, really looking with some careful reflection, what are my attitudes? Uh, Practice of holding all of this with some compassion and loving kindness, another practice which we'll focus on a little more more next week. Or the practice that we brought in last time, a practice of in our interactions, can I have some awareness of my body at the same time that I'm with another or on the telephone. Some way to have that continuity of body practice be more there in everyday life. And so the invitation wasn't to do all of these, but to see where we are in our own development and to do the one or two which seem appropriate. And for some of us, we may have done a lot of them. And so a more advanced practice like being with our bodies as we are speaking or talking. And I'll try to do that now, so that my talk doesn't just come from a tape (laughs) or a purely cognitive function. Can I do that? Can you listen and be aware of what's going on inside? Because really that awareness of the body while interacting 
it's partly to cultivate body awareness, but it's partly to have this way of having both inner and outer attention at the same time. Quite crucial for um, all sorts of things, to be aware when I'm at a meeting of what's going on inside, so I don't, I don't just automatically blurt out, that was really dumb. And I noticed the thought developing, and I asked myself, oh, there's irritation there. Oh, there's frustration. <clears throat> oh, what would be wise to do now? Oh, I noticed myself wanting to say something and blurt out something. Would that be wise? Probably not. Okay, so history has changed (laughs) in the process. So that's where we've been. Uh, Today, I want to focus especially on how body practice has helped develop wisdom. We might say that we've looked so far at how we can, with body practices, develop mindfulness, look at our attitudes, really an aspect of mindfulness. And today, I want to particularly focus on how do body practices cultivate wisdom? And then next week, particularly, look at the ways that body practices can be connected with heart practices, with compassion and loving kindness. So today I want to look particularly at three wisdom teachings that are very directly related to the body or that can be directly related to the body. And these are these are classical teachings, which we can give you know, contemporary readings of. Classical teachings, which are known as the three characteristics, characteristics of experience. And insight into these three characteristics is taken to be at the center of what brings freedom and liberation. And the three are insight into impermanence, insight into suffering and the roots of suffering, and hence the the roots of freedom. And thirdly, insight into interdependence and the lack of solidity of self, what's sometimes called uh, not-self in Buddhist tradition, anatta. And we could also, I think, in a way, update those three characteristics and, for example, study through our body practice, study the relationship of mind and body and heart. Very powerful area in terms of uh, contemporary medicine, in terms of um, contemporary psychology. And I'm going to focus a little bit more on that next time in the context of connecting body practices with the heart. But I'll also bring in how do we generally connect body, mind, and heart? How do we study that? It's a fascinating area to study. Very, very crucial, I think, for health, well-being, knowing ourselves, really knowing more clearly who we are. Who am I? Am I my body? Am I my thoughts? Do you remember uh, that joke about Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, and some Buddhist response was, I am, therefore I think, right? (laughs) Or am I my body? Am I my mind? Am Am I some mix of them? Am I something bigger? Who am I? And so that is part of the uh, cultivation of wisdom. 
but I'll be focusing on impermanence and suffering and the question of interdependence and is there some kind of separate solid self and the questioning of that. And when we talk about insight meditation generally, you know, this, we really are a center here at Spirit Rock of insight meditation. And we, and we may over the years ask, what are the insights of insight meditation? You know, have I had them? <laughs> when will they come? You know, what are they? Well, these are the insights. <laughs> these are some of the, or these are one way we can point to the insights. They're insights into impermanence. They're insights into the uh, nature of suffering, what brings suffering and what brings freedom. And they're insights into really who we are, our sense of identity. And um, this is one way that insights talked about. Generally, when, uh, as it were, when... Um, there's an attempt to get to the most central expression of wisdom, it's actually the second area. The roots of suffering and the roots of freedom. That would be the most fundamental area of insight. But these are, these wisdom practices or these wisdom aspects are what insight is about. And this is what's taken to be especially freeing. And so we practice with awareness of the body not simply for the experience in itself, even though that can be beautiful. When we can be more present with our senses, we see the world more directly. Things are brighter. We experience more, uh, more beauty, more power, and so forth. And that's wonderful in itself. But the focus, really, for why we do this is to become free. And it's to see where we're caught. It's to see the patterns that are connected with suffering. And what's interesting here is that all of these practices of insight can come through attention to our bodily experience. That giving more focused attention to our bodily experience with these particular areas of focus can be a major way to transform our suffering, transform the areas of suffering and I think more broadly to transform them for others as well. And so one way to look at what we're doing here when focusing on impermanence and suffering and question of identity is that we're trying to give a little more precision and focus to our practice. Sometimes we sit, we come here, we do our formal practice, and it can be generally peaceful, but it can also be sometimes rather vague. You know, it's a generally a nice feeling of relaxing. And so what this helps to do, it helps to actually to give a little more precision and clarity and even energy to our practice so that we see more. So we, we might invite ourselves, let me really look at my breath, not in a vague, relaxed way, but let me really notice impermanence. Let me really notice how things are changing. Let me really tune in for any even small moments of suffering. This can uh, help deepen our practice. It's one way to deepen our practice by focusing a little bit more. So let's go through the three of these and then we'll have some time to talk together. So impermanence. I think we can really look at this on several different levels. And I, I think I'll mention three. On the intellectual level, we can reflect on impermanence. And 
it's obvious, right? And on an intellectual level, this is not a challenging teaching. <laughs> we, we all would agree that things are changing. You know, the weather is changing. My body's changing. Um, the newspaper gives reports of changes, mostly negative changes. You know, and we can see that on an intellectual level. So the invitation is actually sometimes to remember the intellectual level, but especially to uh, go a little bit more deeply. And the second level is looking at our moment-to-moment experience of impermanence. And I would say the third level is particularly looking at some of the grosser levels of impermanence related to ourselves and particularly focusing on... um, aging and death in the context of impermanence. So that's what I'll explore a little bit for in terms of impermanence. So in terms of the moment-to-moment experience of impermanence, it's to invite something like the guided meditation that we did. And even maybe right now, can I just be with the stream of changing experiences? Can I just be here and notice I listen to a word, I feel my body, something visual comes into my field. When our mind slows down and can really notice, our experience becomes much less solid. And we notice something that's more like, almost like a flickering night of stars that all manifest our experience. When we actually, our minds slow down, we notice impermanence much more than in our normal reality. Everything seems rather solid, right? People are solid, I'm solid, trees are solid, everything seems seems solid. It's possible when the mind gets slower to see experience a little bit more in its almost constructed nature. You know, and sometimes here we've looked at the uh, reality of how we, um, in many ways, construct our experience. And looking back at some of the Uh, ways that children come to learn to have a world full of objects or the ways that in some experiments with people, let's say, who've been blind from birth and then gain sight, they don't immediately just say, oh yeah, there's a tree, right? That's not their experience. They have to learn to somehow organize all the stimuli into objects, and it can actually be a rather scary experience. You know, it's more like what the philosopher William James called a buzzing, booming confusion that we learn to organize. When we meditate, to some extent, we deconstruct the concepts that we've used, and we come to see a little bit more on the level of change and how things are continually moving. So that's one level we can look at it at, but we can also look at it just as we did in the meditation and study the moment-to-moment change, not necessarily going to that level I just mentioned, but simply noticing, okay, let me just notice. Okay, here's, now there's a thought. Now there's this sensation. Here's my breath moving. And to contemplate that over time in our practice or when we're in nature is a powerful way to study Um, impermanence. And some of it just comes naturally. When I was um, preparing for today, I had um, some memories of how 
really the mystery of impermanence announced itself in my consciousness. And I remembered some st- a story from my childhood. And uh, actually, my, you know, my mom is here, and she will probably correct me if I tell this wrong, or she has her own version of it. But, but um, I remember, um, like maybe like many of you, that time was quite a mystery. You know, and I remember going on trips with my family and sitting in the back seat, and they would ask me what time it is. And I would say, okay. It's 10, 32, and 30 seconds. Oops, nope. 10, 32, and 35 seconds. Oops, nope. 10, 32, and 40 seconds. And as a kid, right, that's, is it, anyone have some similar experiences like that? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have digital watches when I was little. No. <laughs> okay, well. Uh, it was a very interesting experience because it was like a child kind of being, having some sense of this mystery of change and what is this? And, and of course, um, the question of what time it is wasn't meant to solicit mystery. <laughs> it was meant just to answer a practical question. It kind of gives you a sense when, we're, when we deal practically with things, we actually kind of round things off and we actually don't look really precisely. And I, as a child wanted to look precisely at this and say, okay, well, if I give you that answer, it's not going to be correct five seconds later. So what is that about? And so um, there's, you get a sense of that mystery. And I remember also as a college student, another experience that was strong for me was um, I think at least once or twice I w- was growing up on the East Coast um, and I would take Uh, I took at least uh, a few trips down to Florida, like for college spring break. And I would go on buses, and and these like Greyhound buses, and they took a long time because I was coming from New England. And, but it was, it was worth it once you got to spring break, right? (laughs) That probably doesn't happen in anything like the same way here, out here, does it? Because... Who would want to leave the Bay Area? <laughs> so, anyway, but I w- um, and I remember being on these buses and just thinking, time keeps on happening. You know, why do- is it going to stop at some time? You know, what is this about? It's just this kind of the mystery of time opened up by long Greyhound bus rides. <laughs> And, and maybe you've had your version of that, right? Your version of the mystery of impermanence, of change, because it is mysterious. Things change, right? Things keep changing, and, and it and it's, can maybe be an in, invitation to really look and say, uh, let me just study this phenomena of impermanence in my meditation, in, in daily life. And we can, we can look at that, and we can try again to be maybe more precise. We can notice... Looking at our bodily experience, we can notice sensations. We can notice when there's what we call feeling tone, a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We can see how a body sensation leads to a thought. We can see how a thought leads to a body sensation. We can see what we do when we have an unpleasant sensation. Where do we go? And we can kind of try to look a little more carefully at what actually is happening, really hone in and be a little more uh, precise. Try to but as much as possible, can we really stay with the flow of body sensation? Just with the sense, when we eat, can I notice the flow 
of changing sensations with food. You know, there it's quite pleasant. You know, we can do that. It's one of the, the joys, actually, of doing retreats. When the mind gets quiet, we can stay with food and just watch. And just watch the, ah, pleasant. Mm-mm. Pleasant sensation ending. <laughs> you know, and can notice what you do when you eat because it's very interesting. You know, it's almost, and this is kind of getting into the second aspect of um, suffering and grasping and so forth. But we can look at that impermanence and really study that. And that's this whole second, area, second way to look at impermanence, to, to study the flow. In our meditations, just say, for this half hour, I'm just going to stay with the flow of experience. And when we do that over and over again, it starts to open us up to the wisdom of noticing that things really are changing. Because there's part of our minds, and we could see how a lot of our use of concepts and words and just being practical tends to make us think that the world is way more static than it really is. Way more static and organized and um, solid in the sense than, it, than, it, than we find when we look at our experience. A third area to look at in terms of impermanence is to look at our own, it's on a little bit larger, what I call a grosser level, to look at the extent to which I myself am impermanent. A little bit scary at times, right? To contemplate impermanence. In many spiritual traditions, that level of impermanence and the contemplation of that, especially of the reality of one's own death, is taken to be a way to develop not only insight, but also motivation for coming to more freedom. You know, for example, in the Tibetan tradition, right near the beginning of practice, one would contemplate impermanence. There is a teaching that is given when someone starts practice, which is part of what are called the preliminary practices. It's called the teaching of the four mind turnings, or the four reflections which turn the mind, in this context, towards spiritual practice, towards saying what's really important. And the first is the preciousness of the human body and the preciousness of being born. And the second is impermanence, impermanence and death. And so it's taken as a, um, something to focus on to know that I tend not to accept the fact in my guts that I'm really impermanent. Intellectually, of course, I can accept it, but do I do so in my guts? We often do um, questions, like we sometimes do questions to groups like this, and we ask, how many of you um, will actually die? (laughs) The hands go up very slowly. (laughs) What is that about? Because intellectually we know, but I won't won't do it here. (laughs) But it's it's an interesting phenomenon. And that reflection on impermanence is actually a way to also be aware of the processes of aging and death. Um, there's, let me read this. There's, this, is, this. These are some texts from the Tibetan tradition. This is from one of the great Tibetan teachers says, 
if you want to use a simple, uh, a single meditation practice to meditate on impermanence is the most important. So it's taken to be very, very crucial. This is from one of the great yogis of Tibet, Milarepa. He went to the mountains. He said, facing death, I went to the mountains. Over and over again, I meditated on death's unpredictable coming and took the stronghold of the deathless, unchanging nature. Now I have lost that and gone beyond all fear of dying. So there's some way that in so many traditions, really reflecting directly on impermanence and death is a way to help come to really say, what's important for me? Can I live with what's most important to me? Can I see the extent to which I may be um, letting what's less important for me take my life away? It's really that kind of invitation. In, in the classical mindfulness of the body practices of the Buddha, as I've mentioned, a number of the practices invite us to look at decomposing bodies, to go to charnel grounds in the, in the ancient tradition. And so there's that invitation to do that. And so we can do that through reflections, simply to reflect on my own impermanence and reflect on impermanence. This is more at the level of reflection than of meditation. Uh, doing that five or ten minutes a day can make a difference. You know, and it's, it's one way to bring that into being. Or it's actually to go out of one's way to bring um, the reality of illness or aging or death into one's life as a practice. Some of us, that's already there. We don't have to go out of our way. Maybe we need to go out of our way to have less of that. <laughs> For some of us, that, that might be true. It's so we, we stay balanced. But we can do that as a practice. It's, it's, it's recommended in so many traditions. So that's the first area, really contemplating impermanence, especially moment to moment, and then through these kind of reflections. And this is said to really bring about the wisdom, especially of knowing what's important. And it leads to the second aspect, which is using our awareness of the body to see where there are suffering. And it's, this is really a version of saying, can I practice with the body according to this central teaching, which, which is called the teaching of the Four Truths, or the Four Noble Truths, the first teaching that the Buddha gave, which is this teaching uh, that there is suffering, that suffering has a root in some kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away, that is possible to open up to what's there in a way which doesn't have that compulsive grasping or pushing away, and that there are practical ways to help with that process. And so we, we talk about that teaching quite a lot here. We talk about how um, one way to look at that is this way when we look at the level of the body, to what extent can I notice myself um, especially pushing away unpleasant experiences, and to what extent is there suffering? You know, and we, that's a major part of our practice, that we, we learn how to sit with that. You know, and part of the practice, part of the training, is that we're in this situation where simply by the fact of, of sitting quietly, there's, gonna, there's typically, especially if we sit cross-legged, um, which 
most of us, I notice, are not doing, having... But even sitting on a chair, there's some discomfort. And so it's part of a setup, in a, in a way, that we sit for a period of time and we necessarily have certain kinds of minor physical pains. And if we sit in retreats, sometimes they're, they're there for quite a while. And we make the assessment that this is not causing damage, you know, and we learn how to sit. And some of it's just when we sit cross-legged or even sit in a chair, it's simply the body being stiff and needing to relax and there being some discomfort around that. And so we learn how to be with the discomfort of the knee or the discomfort of a shoulder. And it's partly in that process that the, the body relaxes. But we also see how do I how have I organized my life and maybe been conditioned by the culture so that the slightest hint of anything unpleasant, the alarms go off and I want to get rid of it. And so for many of us, this isn't just true about physical discomfort, but also about emotional discomfort or discomfort of um, the news or whatever. And so we learn that, uh, you know, in one of the most Graphic learnings is sometimes if you're sitting and meditating and a fly lands on your nose. Or in other climates, when I was in New England and practicing in Massachusetts, a mosquito lands on my cheek. This is horrible suffering. <laughs> can be. And we can, or we just sit there with the knee and we know that my, I have a little bit of knee pain the last 10 minutes. And when I was first meditating, this was a big deal. I didn't want it to be there, and I could notice my mind um, kind of screaming, even though at the end of the sitting, the pain would go away. And so part of what we do here is that we learn, in this somewhat artificial situation, we learn how to be with the unpleasant, when, again, when the assessment is that it's not causing damage. We learn how to be with the unpleasant and see how the pushing away of the unpleasant can cause suffering or is suffering in a way. This resistance to the present moment, you know, and it's probably can be even more evident when we have certain thoughts or certain emotions that we don't want to be present. You know. But we can study this and we can study this at the level of the body and we can learn how to be present with what's unpleasant without reacting, really without suffering, you know, and that's kind of independent from the question of is it wise to be with the what's unpleasant. Sometimes it might not be wise to be with it. Sometimes we don't have a choice, right? But this second uh, teaching is really about how to be at a bodily level and watch where there's grasping or compulsive pushing away, see how that's linked with suffering, and let me say, can I relax into it, you know? So, one of the ways that this is most used, or this kind of practice has been most used in a practical way, is in the area of medicine, where in programs like that of John Kabat-Zinn and uh, the so-called mindfulness-based stress reduction, people with chronic pain learn how to be with chronic pain without adding the reaction. You know, and I've heard from doctors that 80, and I mention this a lot, 80% or more of what people experience as physical pain is not the original stimulus, but is the reaction. 
And that really is getting at the same teaching. So people apply this to the medical field where it has tremendous results, letting people say, okay, we really can't get rid of this unpleasant sensation, but we do have a choice about how we respond to it. And I can, I can in a way, reduce the suffering tremendously. And so we study this at the level of the body. We can study the very dynamics of how suffering occurs and the possibility of being with the unpleasant without suffering, which is possible. You know, in a way, there's a technical distinction between pain and suffering. And it's sometimes said pain is a given in our experience. Suffering is optional. In that technical sense of pain being the unpleasant sensation and suffering being the compulsive reaction to the suffering. Pain is a given. We have a certain amount of pain but we can learn how not to suffer because of it or to minimize the suffering. So we practice in that second way um, with our experience of the body. And again, we can do it not just with sort of major pain, we can do it with very minor pain and just study it. And, and just, can I open to that? You know, you know, as I sit here personally right now, I notice my knee, there's a little bit of unpleasant sensation in my knee. Can I be present with it? Do I, you know, am I reacting? I, say, I wish that wasn't here. What should I do? Help. <laughs> you know? And so we can practice with that. We can watch uh, the flow of experience and tune in for any moments of reaction and resistance and just study it. That is a way to cultivate wisdom through our experience of the body. And I'll move maybe more briefly to the third aspect, and I'll end with that, that the third aspect is very much related to impermanence. And this has to do with the extent to which when I study my bodily experience, I notice myself in a way creating a self out of my body. The invitation is, can I just be with the flow of experience? this sensation leading to this sensation, to this thought, to this. When do I create something solid? This is related to the teaching of really of what's called uh, not-self or anatta. It's really not so much, um, it's really more of a questioning of the way that we make the self solid. We make the body solid. We maybe do that through self-images or we take an experience we're having and we make it huge. We tell a story about it. You know, it may be that I have a pain in my knee when I'm meditating, and I don't just stay with the sensation, but all of a sudden it becomes a story of my arthritis is coming back. And I go thinking about it for half an hour. Or something like that. Or I might be I might in some way make of my body image something very, very um, solid, uh, as if it was real. And what we're taught to do is really to come back to this level of more direct experience. So we really notice to what extent is a particular bodily experience uh, starting to have stories told about it that get very big and large. 
And partly we just want to notice that. And we need a certain level of stories and narrative. But the question is, what's wise? And what's helpful? What is coming more out of fear? And so we study this. And it's very much related to impermanence because when we really study impermanence, we also notice the tendencies to form all sorts of concepts about our experience, develop all sorts of concepts about our experience. You know, and some of this is very connected with language. So we really tend to see in the Buddhist terminology, we see when we make a big I or mine out of a certain aspect of bodily experience, when we make something big and solid about that. So I think I, I'll, I'll close here and open this up to our discussion, but just maybe to say that um, there is something in this cultivation of wisdom that also takes us into the level of, uh, into paradox, basically. And um, I'll tell a joke I heard yesterday, I think about this, which I was at a wonderful conference uh, sponsored by Tacoon Magazine, which was on really responding. It was actually more on a social level, responding to our social issues. And there was someone, um, there was a, um, a uh, guru named uh, Swami Ananda, who was very, very wise. And he, he was talking, I think, about health issues and the body issues. And he said, you can't really solve this with one doctor, but you can solve it with paradox. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to get that in, I think. (laughs) But, but But there is a way when we go into the wisdom dimension, paradox does arise. And so we look at impermanence, and when we really open to impermanence, we also seem to open to something like awareness, which almost uh, has a quality that's more permanent. We rest more in awareness that seems to have qualities of permanence as we open to impermanence. That we learn that as we learn not to push away pain in a reactive way, we actually open to more pleasure. There's a way that we open up to more bliss. We open up because essentially it's way more pleasant when we're not driven by that compulsive need to get rid of pain. It actually opens us up to more pleasure. When we're willing to open to pain, we open up to more pleasure. And when we don't have so much of a narrow identity, we open up to a very big identity something that is quite um, both personal and universal. So as we explore this wisdom dimension, we open up into really a realm of paradox, which is really in a way beyond the usual concepts. Maybe we can continue more with that next time, but I just wanted to mention that because another way of saying that as we explore all, all these dimensions of wisdom, we open up to the mysterious. It's really beyond our usual model of how things are. We open up to mystery more, which is very exciting and scary at times, but ultimately 
the wonder and the excitement are way more than this fear. So I'll end with that and just invite us to sit for a minute together and then we can talk together. So thank you. I'll invite any questions or reflections. Please. Um, when I came here, I was meditating. Yeah. And I've had these sort of financial shocks yesterday and the day before. Oh, yeah. I took two with bills and income tax and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And now I see it as it's all part of my practice. Yeah, yeah. And also I'm saying, oh, this really is happening. And I'm accepting it and accepting the feelings that it's bringing up. And yeah. it's pretty much okay. I'll, I'll deal with it. Right. Yeah, so it's a whole shift. Right. And your name is? Yeah. <laughs> remind me of your name? Laurel. Uh, Laurel, that uh, really is. It's really looking at that, uh, the equivalent of that second aspect of wisdom that we were talking about on the level of our really everyday lives and, and actions, of, which is really a teaching of um, opening to what's present and seeing how we have these conditioned tendencies not to open to what we think is unpleasant. Right? And, and that, and that uh, um, Ultimately, it's more of a relief to be able to open to it and not have so much energy to deny it or make it go away. Yeah. So this, this, is, this is the core of our teaching, and it's, it's, it's actually a very powerful principle that um, is important, I think, both individually but also a core principle for families, organizations, and cultures and societies where the principle of denial is very, very strong, right, as we know. Yeah, thank you. Uh, please, Cynthia. Yeah. Um, I, it's uh, talking about slowing down your mind and, yeah. um, and really being with what's really happening um, and how we're just kind of, when you do that, it's kind of like our life's an impermanence, a flickering yeah. kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, that reminded me of a couple of things, and one is... Um, when I used to go to the Mariposa Grove in Yosemite with the giant sequoias, I am a real tree freak, and I, I like I hug them and I feel them. Yeah. And an insight I got from that was that I was very impermanent to them. 
because yeah. they're so slow and they're there for so long. Yeah. That we're like little flickering flies, <laughs> you know, going, you know, by really fast. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was kind of an insight for me. And then I just saw a movie called The, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, mm-hmm. which is incredible. Um, it's about a, a real person who had a major stroke and he had locked-in syndrome. Mm. And before that, he was like the editor of French Elle and he was very... A bon vivant and and a very speedy life, and then he he his mind was working, but his body was totally yeah paralyzed. Yeah, and he only could communicate by blinking his eye. Yeah, and at first he was resisting it, and you kind of are there in his from his point of view. Yeah, and how scary that is, and how that feels. Yeah, and then he decided to broaden, mm-hmm. and and he accepted it, and he wrote a whole book yeah. about his experience. And, mm. But it was because, I mean, if he had gone on with his life, that would have never happened. He wouldn't have opened to that experience. Yeah, yeah. That's very powerful. Did everyone hear? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of the first point you made about the, what, the um, Cynthia and the Sequoias, <laughs> right? That uh, it's a wonderful reflection, you know. I, and it made me think, I know there's a poem by... A, uh, late poet Lou Welch, he wrote a poem very similar. He, he, and he actually kind of trumped the sequoias. He, he said, okay, from the point of view of the rocks, the sequoias are these young ones, <laughs> you know. And so there was, you know, but it's that's interesting perspective, right? You know, where to, um, Joanna Macy has a meditation where one contemplates one's one's place in the, um, the movement since the Big Bang, you know, which is what, uh, 15 and a half billion years, I believe. And um, you know, she actually does that both to get a sense of impermanence, but also as a principle to build equanimity, to think that we're actually connected with that. We go way back. Our connections go all the way in this field. So impermanence can sometimes more focus on one aspect, right? That's a little more my insignificance, but we can also go the opposite direction and see that interconnection. Yeah. And then, yeah, the second one about, about um, opening up to very challenging bodily conditions, you know, and how hard that is, but this is a story of someone who was able to do that, and it's really a powerful transformation. Thank you. Please, yeah. Um, yeah, I I definitely um, appreciated the teaching on pain and suffering, and yeah. um, and had a difficult experience as recently as you know last night that I was drawing upon as you were talking about it, <clears throat> and I'm still struggling with this, you know, aspect of. I get it, but I don't, um, you know, am I, am I, can I mitigate it with something like meta, you know, um, or can I actually stay with it and how long, how long can I stay with it? Because it doesn't seem to be long enough to get through the experience. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and remind me? Michelle. Uh, Michelle's question, everyone here, uh, was about sort of how we 
work, let's say, with difficult bodily experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there, there are a few guidelines because uh, we're not always able to be present, mindful, and study pain, the, the uh, relationship between pain and suffering. You know, we're not always able to do that. Um, you know, at times, as I mentioned, it may not be wise to do that. You know, we, I think the general guideline when we have retreats, for example, is that if, if the pain that comes up during a sitting lasts more than half an hour after a sitting, then, you, then it's not so wise to go there because it may be doing something, you know, maybe doing some damage. We don't want to do that. We want to deal with what is just there. And, you know, and then there's a certain, there are other certain guidelines about what's, what's wise. That's the first point. And then, um, at times, pain unbalances us. And when that's the case, it's very hard to be present with it. So it may be that we can be present for a certain period of time. And then we're feeling way out of balance. And then we do what helps us come back to balance. You know, if there's some kind of chronic pain, then we may, you know, at at the hardest times, we would take uh, pain medication. You know, so people who've been using meditation in medical context are quite sophisticated about when to do this, when to do this. To kind of the the idea is, I think, to maximize learning. And so, at times, we would, we, if we can't really be balanced with what's there, we do that, which helps us to come back to balance. Which could be, in one case, it could be medication, in another case, it could be. Um, uh, just like using the loving kindness, which is like holding oneself like one, a mother to a child, something like that, getting emotional comfort, you know, some, something like that. Um, and that, that would, could be translated into emotional pain as well. So sometimes when we're balanced and can really be with it, that's when we cultivate wisdom. But at times we can't do that. At times with emotional pain, we need to just cry or we need to be with a friend and just really express it and say, Forget about wisdom. I need some connection, <laughs> right, or something like that. So it's each of those are valid at certain times. So part of the art of meditation is to know when, which of those is appropriate, right? And and so in a in a given day, it might be, you do it for a certain amount of time, and then you say, okay, I need some coming back to balance. Interesting. Yeah. Let's see. Okay, maybe the last one. Yeah. You mentioned um, John Kabat-Zinn's work, yeah. and I just wanted to offer a testimonial. I, um, I have fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis, and I was able to participate in the mindfulness-based stress reduction program at UCSF Integrative Medicine. Yeah. And it was extremely helpful, not just to myself, but people who were suffering from far greater yeah. illnesses and uh, types of chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And I also highly recommend John Kabat-Zinn's book, uh, the great, uh, the full catastrophe. Full catastrophe living. And so if you know people who are dealing with chronic pain and illness, um, they might want to check it out. Yeah, thank you. And your name? Tracy. Tracy. Uh, thank you, Tracy. And there's, a, there's actually, I think, a book which just was published. Actually, it's actually not coming out till March 1st, but I think there are copies in the bookstore, which is a workbook done by Bob Stahl, and I forget his co-author. Bob often teaches here, lives in Santa Cruz who has been a trainer in mindfulness-based stress reduction for quite some time, he has a workbook that is, I think, in the bookstore, 
uh, a workbook which applies those principles and something that people could take home and either ha work with on, on their own or combine it with going to a class. But the, yeah, it's very... And, and what we've explored would make sense of why it could work, right? That, that sense of the being with the sensation, we often think, oh, this is where the suffering is, but the suffering is more in what the... Is it, was that your experience in the contraction and what you do with it? Yeah. Grasping and pushing away. When you stop trying to push it away and just learn to observe it, yeah. experience it, and, and then say, oh, I, I'm feeling pain in my knee, and kind of let it fall, it really helps. Yeah, not to mention the emotional suffering, which can often be even way greater than the physical, physically based uh, suffering. So, yeah, so the. Thank you, Tracy. That's. that's um, um, it's great to hear, really. Yeah. And so what I'll encourage for the next week, and maybe for the rest of your lives, <laughs> if you so choose, um, is to, in your meditation, do something like what we did at the end of the sitting. That is, take 10 minutes and just contemplate impermanence. Or just sit, I don't know, just sit somewhere and contemplate the changing nature of things. And then also do some, you could do 10 minutes with that. And you can also just try to tune in to when there is that moment of contraction or pushing away of a compulsive nature. And tune into that and just see if you can relax into it. Again, if the assessment is that that's wise to do. And so the invitation would be to do that in your meditation and in your daily life. And we can come back next week and talk together. And I'll bring in this additional piece of bringing in the aspect of compassion and the relationship of the body to the heart and to the mind, kind of mind-body-heart relation. We'll explore that next week. So um, how many would like to give a little more attention to impermanence and the pain, suffering, complex in the next week. Okay. And those of you who didn't raise your hand, feel free to do it anyway. <laughs> but we'll invite that. So let's just sit for a minute to close. Letting whatever was helpful from the day be there, along with any of your intentions for the next week. And so we close by remembering that we do these practices and we gather together not just for ourselves but also for others. And we offer what's been valuable from the morning out into the world for the benefit of all beings. Thank you kindly for your attention and hope to see many or most of you next week.
and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.